Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Conversations of Color. This week, our topic is focused on mental health. So we have a, a, a few guests that we would like to introduce to you all. We'll have Lanita, um, Cassandra, and Mary, um, a few a few lovely ladies to, to share about their journey. So what I'll have them do first, before we kind of jump in into uh, introductions, we'll kind of start with our Aggie and Lit campaign. So Lanita, Cassandra, Mary, well, basically what it is is you, sh- you just share uh, what it got you excited this week. That's your lit. And what got you upset or you sad, frustrated is your Aggie. So lit and Aggie. I can go. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to start with what got me Aggie because I like ending with what got me lit. What got me Aggie this week is um, somebody at work confused my name with another brown person's name who's not even at, at my job anymore. Like she's just not even there. And I like mm. kindly in the chat box was like, you mean her, but that had me, that had me Aggie. But what had me lit is I live in Guatemala and there are no black people in the city. And I think I found a hair braider. So oh. TBD. All right. That's a win. That's a win. That's a win. Um, I'll go next. Um, hello everyone. It's Mary. Um, I'll start with Aggie. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi said, she called um, George Floyd. She mentioned something about the trial and mentioned him sacrificing his life. So that definitely got me Aggie because that wasn't a sacrifice. Um, but what definitely got me Liddy is the change in the weather, minus allergies, but just something about the warm weather, the sun being out, seeing so many people. It's just exciting. It puts me in a great mood. We outside. We outside. Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is Cassandra. Uh, so I will do the same. What got me Aggie is um, we're looking for another place to rent right now. And uh, we went and met with some landlord today, this nice white couple. Um, but I am the breadwinner and sole income earner. And my husband is a stay-at-home parent. And they asked us, um, so is he planning on having income anytime soon, even though I make four times the rent? Um, so I just got a little, I'm still a little hot about it happened this morning. Cause you know, if the sexes were reversed, they would not have asked that question. Um, and what got me lit is right now, actually out in the front yard, we're having my niece, a little birthday party for her. Everyone's vaccinated. That's coming. Um, so this is important to come, but, um, I'm really happy to be together with family again. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm sorry to hear that story about your landlord. Oh, the, Landlord to be maybe, but yeah. Andra, thank you for you know taking the time out to do this despite having family over as well. Yes, definitely appreciate it. I'm, uh, now the the living uh, renting in LA is can be horrendous sometimes dealing with with folks. I've had some personal experiences myself. Um, so thank you, ladies, for all sharing. And what I would like to each of you to kind of do is to just introduce yourself and share a little bit to about yourself to some of our listeners. I, we'll start with Mary first. Hello, everyone. Um, right now, I am a licensed social worker. I have passed my board exam 
in the beginning of 2019. So that was stressful time, but also exciting. Um, at this time, I'm working at a supportive housing program in the South Bronx, working with young adults who have aged out of foster care, experienced mental illness, substance abuse, just a lot of trauma, um, homelessness. So I've worked with like young adults who've experienced blindness, but right now my priority is foster care. Um, that's what I'm doing. I do love it. Um, I'm from the Bronx. So to be able to kind of work in the community that I was raised in is, um, something dear to my heart. Um, hi everyone. Hi listeners. <laughs> I'm Lanita Johnson. Um, I'm from Atlanta. So, you know, I got a rep, I got a rep Atlanta, all y'all New Yorkers. <laughs> Um, I'm currently in my full-time job, an education foreign service officer, live in Guatemala City. Um, but in my spare time, I like to consider myself uh, a blogger, a mental health advocate, and an anti-terrorism educator. I kind of fell into this space after a really um, narrowly surviving a, a terrorist attack in Burkina Faso in 2016. So I wanted to start a safe space um, to just kind of provide resources for civilians who are experiencing PTSD. But also at that time, I really hadn't accepted my diagnosis. And so having a space where I could just kind of write freely and get my thoughts out and provide resources all the same kind of helped me get to the place in which I found mental health advocacy admirable and fun and something that we all need. So I'm excited to hear the conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And lastly, we'll have Cassandra share a little bit about herself. Hey, everybody. I'm Cassandra Solano. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of California and a relationship coach. Um, I have been in the field since 2005 after a rough start um, in my youth with drug addiction, homelessness, domestic violence, all the things. Um, I worked in group homes with adolescent girls, school social work. Uh, I worked with an early release program here in California called AB 109 and did mental health. Um, and now I am currently running my own coaching business and um, did well in public mental health, but got burnt out. Um, so I'm really happy to be here and to be sharing my experience today. No, thank you. And we're, we're, we're extremely excited to have all you ladies on. I know this is going to be a great conversation. And what I'll do, I'll swing it to my lovely co-host, Desiree, to have us kind of jump in. Yeah, so I really enjoyed your introductions. And um, one of the questions that I have for all of you ladies, and feel free to whoever wants to go, just jump right in. Um, you know, when I think of mental health, and I think of the field and working in it, we as people of color in the field or just people in general, I don't think um, grow up or as little kids say, I want to be in this field. It's not like a dream of ours. Um, so my question to you, lovely ladies, is what brought you to this field? Um, what was the deciding factor? And just kind of, yeah, tell me how you ended up in the professions that you're in. Um, so growing up, I actually... <clears throat> had some social workers involved in my life, different races, different genders. Um, but I specifically remember, uh, I probably don't want to say her name because she didn't give me permission to, but I'll call her Miss V. Um, she was my social worker for about like a year and a half. And I just remember having like this really great relationship with her, um, her kind of just understanding me and talking to me as 
an individual and being able to have like autonomy over my life and my decisions that I wanted to make. So I had this really great relationship with her. And I'm just like, wow, like I would love to kind of be in this same position um, to be able to hear voices of young people who haven't been heard. Um, so being able to have like such a positive relationship with the social worker all early on definitely helped me. Um, I grew up in the South Bronx and seeing like a lot of like young men in my community kind of be involved in the criminal justice system very early on. And so I was like, you know what, like, this is my passion. Let me just follow through with it. Um, so like, I'm very thankful to be able to kind of have like positive interactions with social workers. So I wanted to be able to kind of have that same impact on other young adult lives. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, Cassandra and Lenita, what about you two? So I kind of ended up in the mental health space in a way that I I really wouldn't advise others to participate in. Um, I was doing a a mission trip to Burkina Faso. And at that time I worked in corporate America, I like was not feeling the vibes. So I had this opportunity to build a school in Burkina Faso. And unfortunately on the last day, um, Al Qaeda attacked the restaurant that I was in. Um, And it was just a really unnerving incident. I was like in hiding for about 17 hours, but I remember very fervently um, because I had experience in undergrad teaching ESL um, and working with communities of color with the Hispanic population. I remember very fervently asking God, like, if you get me out of this situation alive, I promise I will follow the education field and help help in this field that I love. And so I remember the first thing I did when I made it out of the situation was ask kind of who did this. And about a day or two later, I found out they were kids. They couldn't have been any older than 18, 19. And what struck me about that experience um, and reading a little bit more about the incident I was in, there were often times where they took pause, the guns were too heavy. Like it was just a lot of information about children in a very um, terrible situation. And I couldn't hold anger to them because they were kids. And so from that point on, I always had the dream to study and learn more and be in spaces to where I'm able to impact kids from joining terrorist organizations. But there's a really large mental health piece that happens to PTSD survivors and victims that I think a lot of people don't don't talk about unless they're veterans. And so when I came home, I was also searching the internet for like, how long am I going to have PTSD? What is PTSD? What are some of the effects of terrorism? And I was getting really like a mixed bag of information and none of it was for at the time I was 22 when I survived the attack. It was all catered to like old white men coming home from war and they weren't stories of for example, people traveling, people in attacks, or even things as different as living in a neighborhood where you're experiencing constant violence and trauma, rape, abuse. And so I wanted to just kind of have conversations that were outside of this kind of white male coming home from war, coming home and abusing alcohol and drugs, and talk about some really real things that were happening in in my life that I wasn't seeing either on the internet or in conversations at all. Wow. Well, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story, Lenita. You know, I think it's, there's a big stigma around, especially for women of color, um, having PTSD that doesn't look like having come back from combat. And so I really appreciate you normalizing that for us. Um, And Cassandra, how about you? How did you get into this field? 
So I always wanted to do something that helped people, teacher. I actually was a police explorer for four years through high school, and I am really just starting to be able to wrap my head around how that impacted me and traumatized me in a lot of ways, being in that culture. Um, So that will be another uh, whole talk for another day. Um, and then, like I said, I got into addiction as a way to cope with a lot of trauma and abuse that I went through growing up. Um, so when I got sober at 22, I thought I just want to help people. Um, and that's when I found the group home job, um, you know, making eight bucks an hour, um, breaking up fights, you know, doing the whole deal holding these, you know, sweet little girls as they cried at night with their nightmares and their flashbacks. And um, that just really opened my eyes to this whole world of social services. Um, So it has always felt like a calling to, to serve and to help. And that's changed over the years and what that looks like. Um, But I really can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, thank you, ladies, so much for sharing your experiences. I do think that there's a theme that we kind of find ourselves in this field based on our own experiences with mental health and either having somebody there for us or going through something traumatic ourselves. So thank you so much for sharing your backgrounds. Um, My next question would be for you, Cassandra. And I'm just wondering how you went from working in the corporate mental health space Um, to owning your own coaching business, like what that was like for you, how you ended up there, just uh, if you can tell us a little bit about that. So it wasn't something that I planned or ever thought I could do. Um, In graduate school, I was actually very judgmental of the other students in my cohort that were, you know, already knew they wanted to do a private practice model. And I thought, you're not a real social worker. You're not like down for the people, like, you know, and I had a lot of, um, judgment around that. Um, and it's interesting too, when I kind of step back and look at it, at the, the dynamics of who were the students that were, that were doing that and, and already had their mindset for that. It was mostly my white, you know, people in my cohort. And so I think that's something just interesting because through grad school, we're told, um, you do this for the love, not the money, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, because society has such little value on children, on marginalized populations, on homeless folks, right? Like it's, we get funded the bare minimum to support these folks. And the people that are doing the work and getting paid um, are not getting paid well. Um, And it's a huge, you know, issue. Um, But I went into mental health right after um, high school with the LA County Department of Mental Health. And I was um, a clinician working again with uh, the early release uh, AB 109 population and also with the uh, like a full service kind of wraparound for folks coming out of long term um, institutionalization or folks that were chronically homeless. So we I was the one in the um, storm drain knocking on tents looking for my clients and doing that outreach and um, working with folks. And what I saw and experienced in the system is that the folks that actually really care, at least in my experience, don't get a lot of support. And um, even though this system is mostly staffed, at least when I could see on the front line by women of color, the management often doesn't reflect that either, right? And there's not a lot of um, safety and, and protection for folks. And I even saw that as I went into management with my own staff. Um, how 
you know, there were things that were happening out there in the field with clients that they didn't even feel like they could come talk to us about. And um, I think it's it's unfortunate. It, and not every agency is like this, of course, but um, a lot of times, lack of funding, lack of support, lack of training, lack of trauma-informed leadership and, and real cultural competency and inclusivity, um, you know, it really sets up folks that, that do care deeply to often fail um, unless, you know, you have like the most excellent self-care, which I didn't at the time I was going through a divorce. Um, I started getting vertigo, shingles. I was just a mess. So I decided to take a $30,000 pay cut from a clinical director into another agency as just a, a worker bee and focused on my kids. And during that time, um, I started following people online that kept talking about running a business. And I didn't know why I was just starting to be attracted to that. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll pick up a client or two, you know, the nights the kids are at their dad's house and make some extra cash. Um, but then I started to see that I could really do that in some, and I had to do a lot of self-reflection around my beliefs around what I thought my work and my energy and time was worth financially, energetically, what I thought people like me, you know, um, people were growing up. I just heard how we're not like those people and, and um, we can't go shopping at that grocery store because there's too many white people. And um, well, that's, that's fine for them because that friend's white, but you know, you got to be this way. And, um, and so I just always thought like some level of success or running a business is not accessible to somebody like me. I do have an uncle that opened a successful chain of hamburger stands locally. Um, but besides that, you know, starting a business is not even something that was possible. My dad started and failed many businesses growing up. Um, so it was feast or famine. Um, and he has a lot of untreated trauma and is an alcoholic. So, um, it was almost like it, it called me and I saw what I could do and the time freedom that I could have and the control that I could have with my schedule with my kids. Um, so I worked full time and as building a, this coaching business for about a year and a half um, before I finally left the full time job because I don't get child support. I don't have family that has money. <laughs> I don't have anybody. Um, and that was OK to take that time to make that transition. Um, because I really had to shift a lot of how I had internalized those colonizer messages around my value and my worth and what my energy and worth was, was again, was worth, um, you know, women like me and my family are housekeepers, right. And, and child caregivers. And, um, I didn't see a lot of people that look like me in online coaching spaces. Um, now I'm, I'm seeing more and I'm deliberately following and looking for more, and connecting with more women of color, which is amazing. Um, but it was a lot of internal shifts, you know, and deprogramming. And now, um, you know, I support my family of six um, with my business. Um, my husband's a stay-at-home parent. Um, he helps a little bit with the bookkeeping. He does all the cooking and cleaning. I have to say, I've not washed a piece of laundry in a year and a half. <laughs> Like he takes well, the care of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, I've been able to hire people and, um, and get that support. Um, but it has been, you know, a slow journey. I didn't have parents that were like, Oh, here's $20,000 to start a business or 
anything like that. Um, so uh, it's okay that it, it took its time. Um, and yeah, I, I hope I get to do this for the rest of my life and um, be able to have this freedom. It's still a lot of work. I work seven days a week, <laughs> you know, and it's still, it's still a hustle, but um, it's on my terms. And I had a lot of guilt. I'll just say this last point with leaving public mental health. I felt like I was abandoning all those folks, you know, that I had been serving and working with. Um, but it's been pointed out to me and it's been my experience too, that now I have more time and more finances to donate to causes, right. To, to participate in mutual aid, to, um, make phone calls and write letters and do things to advocate for policy change that although I was told in social work school, like this is what you should be doing. I was so burnt out by the end of the day at the clinic. I was not able to do that. And so now I'm looking at, okay, this is actually going to be a different kind of way of supporting those people. Like I'm not abandoning them. Um, it's just, it's just changing in my capacity to, to support um, is growing with my business too. I think as people of color, like we don't see people who look like us in many fields. And this is like a theme that we're seeing when we talk to our guests on the podcast. And um, it's interesting that we grow up and we feel like we don't have value or worth to be certain things and only can be what we see like is represented to us. So it's amazing to see you doing what you're doing and uh, showing people that it's possible and that you know, you really can do anything if you, you know, do the work on yourself within. So thank you. Um, so we like all, all of us working in the mental health field, like I know there's like so many challenges that like you all face and different working with just different, working with different populations, just working with different people on a regular basis. So I have a question for Mary. Um, what challenges do you face working with young adults? And how do you feel after working with them, they happen to age out? How do you deal with that? So um, my particular supportive housing program, we work with them from 18 through 24. And in many cases, um, we still keep them housed because technically they're leaseholders. So even though they age out, we can't kick them out of the program. Um, But for me, when I'm working with my young adults who have aged out of foster care, I noticed a lot of them have been institutionalized. Um, I specifically remember working with an adult who was in foster care since she was two um, and haven't gotten adopted. And she had many siblings and they were split up. Um, And so when I get them at 18 or 19, um, even though I'm a social worker here to help them, I represent an institution who separated their family, an institution who... Um, remove them out of their home and just an institution that's not supportive. And so for me, sometimes there's, it's hard to like find like a breakthrough and just working with them um, in foster care. They tell you what to do. They tell you when to do it. They place you in specific homes. And if you complain, they'll probably force you to stay there or transfer you to a different foster home. So they really don't have control over their life. So when they get to our program, it's like, I'm not listening to you. Like, I just want to live in my apartment and do my own thing. Um, But as time goes on, just being able to engage with them. So like before COVID, we had a lot of programs that were in person. Um, And I love engaging with my young adults. Um, 
in informal ways, going to groups with them. We used to have breakfast at the site, like one Friday a month. We would just sit for an hour. We would cook together. We'll eat in the common area and just being able to engage with them on a level where it's not, let's talk about your service plan. Let's talk about your goals and your next steps to transition and find your own apartment. Being able to meet with them in the community. Um, We have some who are working, going to school where they're not on site during like the nine to five, but it's like, I'll meet you downtown for lunch for 30 minutes just so we can check in. So I've noticed like those informal meetings and being able to gauge with them, I'm able to build a better relationship with them. Um, Cause when we get them, we have to do these assessments and, you know, kind of come up with a plan to eventually have you live independently. But can you imagine like being so traumatized, like in these systems all your lives, meeting someone for the first time and having to disclose everything about your life? It's very uncomfortable. Um, And so for me, it's like, I'm not going to pressure you, like whatever you're willing to disclose, you know, let's talk about it. And if it's something you don't want to talk about it, we'll discuss, we'll discuss it another time. Um, So just being able to meet with them literally where they are and being able to respect the fact that like at this moment, like I'm not willing to talk about certain things and that's completely okay. What inspired you to pursue social work, Mary? I had two aunts who got their bachelor's in criminal justice and I just remember them coming home. And they would leave their books out and I would like pick up the books and I would enjoy learning about the history of criminal justice. So when I went to undergrad, I actually got my bachelor's um, in science and my major was criminal justice. But when it was like my senior year, I'm like, is this really what I want to do? So I just remember applying to I think it was the mental health program for graduate school. And I actually didn't get in and it only accepted, I think, between 20 and 25 people. So I'm like, all I did for this school, like I'm a great student and you didn't accept me into your program. So I was questioning, like, is this the right thing for me? And I just remember going back and speaking with some advisors and they're like, why not do social work? So I just remember last minute, like gathering all these different letter recommendations, redoing, you know, the entire application and got in. And throughout the time um, when I was getting my degree, I, all of my papers were focused on the criminal justice um, field, young adults specifically who have been criminally involved. Every single paper like focused on that. But once I graduated and got into the field, I started working with young adults. But again, it is my goal to eventually like get back into working with um, young adults who have been involved in the criminal justice system. But I know in the introduction, I mentioned like just seeing a lot of, you know, young men in the community get arrested. And even when they get out and they do their time for their crime, they still have to check in with a parole officer. So it's just so many things where it's like, even after you get out, like you still feel like you're doing time for, you know, the crime that you've committed. Um, so that that's what motivated me. You know, I have people in my family who've been involved in the criminal justice system. I kind of see like how their lives have changed. Um, so that's that's what inspired me and what continued to inspire me to do the work that I do. Mary, you know what made me think of what you said just about having, you know, kind of people in your family that have kind of gone through difficult situations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, myself growing up in the Bronx as well, I, I have kind of those similar uh, patterns in my family. Mm-hmm. But but what I'm seeing a lot more is that um, you were talking about how Black men are, are, are starting to recognize that that they need some type of help or, you know, some type of assistance. So for me, I'm starting to see a lot of more, more of my friends start asking for, hey, do you know someone I can talk to? You know, is there a therapist? So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to see that the conversation is starting to switch 
um, where people are not looking at it as such as a bad thing, but seeing like, oh, okay, I started to, to understand it. And even for myself, I've been, I've been on my path seeking, um, uh, a mental health assistance and uh, getting a therapist. So I'm, I'm in my process. I got my sessions lined up. So I'm, 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 I'm working on it, you know, trying to, to, to fight these uh, stereotypes. I, I completely agree. I know there's a lot of stigma with receiving um, mental health support, but we all have our traumas, right? And your trauma can be different from mine, or maybe Something that affects you may not affect me, but I love how the stigma around mental health is changing. Um, myself as a social worker, like I even see a therapist, right? Like we all have our own individual things. And then I also notice like in the field itself, like some of the stories and things that I read from my clients, I'm like, this is taking a toll on me. So I need to be able to kind of process that and just ensure that it's not affecting me to the point where I can't do my work. But I do love how the stigma around mental health is definitely changing because again, like people need the help, but who wants to, you know, it's a, it's hard to say like, okay, like I need to address this. So I love the fact that there are services out there, like specifically for black men. Um, and I know Taraji P. Henson, she has an organization that she named after her, her father, where she's like offering support, um, mental health support for black men and people just, you know, who need it. So yeah. Yes, I'm definitely also glad that the stigma is actually changing because I think for so long in our communities that it's just been so taboo and we're so used to just sweeping our problems underneath the rug and not facing them through the pride and other situations. I just feel like now I'm happy that it is actually making a change as well. Um, the leader, the next question is for you. Um, I wanted to know, why did you become an education foreign service officer in Guatemala City? Yes. And I want to go back. Clinton, we'd love to see that you're on the path. I'm happy about it. I'm excited. <laughs> black men are the way to black boy joy. So we love it. Um, with regards to my role, I, I, I'm, I'm happy I'm the role. I won't talk too much about it, but I will talk about the ways that I radicalize mental health in my space. Um, like I was mentioning earlier, you know, um, when I was kind of in the situation in the attack um, praying that I got out. I was like, all right, I'm a, I'm gonna go into education, but I didn't know, uh, about being a diplomat. Uh, I know about diplomacy informally. I was an international communications major in undergrad, but I didn't know what it entailed. And, um, there are so many great fellowships out there, um, that get traditionally underrepresented groups into the foreign service. So I applied for three fellowships, the Payne Fellowship, which is the one I was awarded, the Pickering and the Wrangell Fellowships, those lead you into a pathway to State Department, and the other leads you into a pathway to USAID. But they pretty much give you uh, a ride to get your master's degree, two internships, and, and joining the foreign service, which I think is really awesome because when we before we even get to radicalizing uh, healthy workplaces, healthy situations for us to be okay and well at work, we have to be in the room. And so through this fellowship, I'm really blessed to have been given the opportunity to announce it in the room. And now that I am in the room, in addition to working um, with nonprofits and, and, and working with youth workforce development for Guatemalan youth, I'm also really becoming an, a radical advocate of how foreign service officers of color and just general workplace wellness is being tended to. And so I think without 
chatting specifically about my job, I think it's important that we are true to ourselves and we're authentic to ourselves and coming in the workplace. And I, I know that we might talk about how the pandemic has impacted us later, but I think what this pandemic has done in a pause has made everybody say, okay, like we were going too fast and it was unsustainable. How are we going to address this? And I know a lot of people's workplaces haven't changed. We're still on a computer for Matt Long. We're still like having migraines. Everybody's buying blue light glasses. They're sold out of Amazon. Like we're doing too much. And so how I show up authentically and, and tend to mental health advocacy in my space is I don't have the bandwidth. And I say that now. And I think I didn't have the capacity to say that before, or even, you know, Clinton referring to why you started these podcasts, this podcast, talking about George Floyd and how that impacted us. I was coming to work. I'm representing the country and I'm watching people get killed back home. And so I finally, after all of these years of, of working in corporate spaces and being scared, Finally, it was like, no, like we have to talk about this and y'all want us here. You want us in the room and you want to tout these statistics and figures among all companies. All companies want to do that. We, oh, we're so diverse. Where's inclusion? Where are the conversations? And so I find through radical conversations that are tending to my own boundaries, such as I don't have the bandwidth. I'm not going to be able to do that. Or, or on the, the other real side of mental health issues, I was, in a, I was on a work trip and I had a PTSD panic attack because there were fireworks going off. I had to be very honest with my boss later, please don't send me to events that have fireworks because I can't do it. I literally went to go cry in a corner. And so it's conversations where in the past, and I think even still the taboos about saying, I have PTSD, I cannot serve in this country. You will not get your best me in this country and having really authentic conversations without the fear of repercussion and being fully okay with whatever decision is made, just as long as you are authentic to you. That's how I feel my my advocacy is serving a role in a space that is not directly tending to folks who are, who are working in the mental health space. Wow, Lenita, I do want to say that that's probably the most self-loving thing that you can do. And as a, a woman of color, you know, so, so often our voices are silenced or, you know, we're told, especially because Cassandra mentioned colonization earlier, we live in a country where like you have to burn yourself out to be like deemed like worthy or valuable. But I think that there's this like really big shift happening where we're all kind of taking our power back and being like, no, like I'm tired. Like I'm not going to do this. And when I feel rested, then I will continue because how else are we going to be of service and of value effectively if we're burnt out and not listening to our bodies and ourselves, you know? So thank you so much for your radical advocacy that you are offering. I really love that. If I get fired, I'm going to let them know other people think it's great <laughs> while I'm living on unemployment. <laughs> you know, hopefully not. <laughs> right. Let's, yes. We'll send you something. <laughs> Yes, Lenita, too. Um, I feel what you're doing is like, just beyond dope. And I just feel like, as a woman of color myself, I just feel like 
for us, we'll always feel like we have to like be the bigger person or we always feel like we have to be like the loudest one to make a change in the room just because like our male counterparts always feel like we have to feel that way. But I just feel at this point that, like Des said, we're taking our power back and it's dope to see like we're all working together to get that power back. I love yeah. it. So, so with that said, my next question for all of you um, would be, you know, as people of color, because that is our focus of our podcast, um, what has been the most important um, thing that you've learned when it comes to generational trauma, whether personally or collectively? Is there something that you would like to tell the listeners? Cassandra, if you wanted to go first. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, really understanding colonization and and decolonization and what that really means. Um, My mom as an immigrant did what a lot of immigrants did and threw herself into this culture, adapting and internalizing white supremacy, um, capitalism, you know, all the things, because that's what you know, she thought, and that's what was sold, right? That's going to be successful. And unlearning that, especially since I've left corporate, it was just like this big kind of energetic shift um, has been so liberating. Um, And I still catch myself every day, you know, oh, like there's racism, there's colonization, there's capitalism, like, and um, because I was raised in the United States and this is so deep. Um, and the more that, that I shift and change this, um, I started, I think this healing work, um, taking it to a deeper level once I became a mother, but I'm also watching it go up the generations too. And my mom and dad having conversations with me that we've never had before, or my dad just actually took a $20,000 pay cut, um, cause his company got bought out and they were going to, he's 64. They were going to chew him up and spit him out. And he took my example of doing that a few years ago and said, I'd rather make less money and be able to work till retirement and, and be around my grandkids. Um, and it's not about trying to climb the ladder anymore. So when we make these changes and embody these changes, it, it not only goes down the lineage, it also goes, you know, up the lineage in ways that maybe we don't expect. I know I felt a lot of judgment from the Thea's, you know, when I was working and, my husband started to be the stay-at-home dad, um, a lot of negative stereotypes, right? And um, that we've all internalized about like a lazy Mexican or whatever. And um, and now I'm showing them like it's that's not necessarily so. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I just want to name that and also participating um, with Indigenous healers around um clearing out ancestral trauma, connecting with my own well-seated ancient ancestors and um, connecting with them, praying to them, having an ancestor altar and having them be a huge support in my life um, has also radically changed and healed me. Yeah, Cassandra, I just want to say that yes, for breaking down those gender norms too, you know, you being the breadwinner and your husband being a stay-at-home dad, that's that's great to see because we don't see that often. So got no problem with that. I'm just going to say that right now because women love to say men have issues with it. I got no problem with that. I love to cook. I'm I'm raised by a a woman. I know how to wash clothes and I always wash dishes. Okay. I got a dishwasher and I still hand wash them. 
Clinton's trying to be somebody's son. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and it's hard work. My husband going having to be the full-time teacher to my three wild children um over this last year with COVID, it's no joke. And we really had to to face like how much we've internalized ourselves judgment around domestic labor and work and child raising. Um, and, and really had to kind of walk our talk on that, right? Because it is no joke to homeschool three little kids. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I think you touched on a piece that's really interesting that I, I love that this conversation is expanding like a little bit beyond um, like, how are we addressing our own healing as well? And so you mentioned being open to other types of healing, such as like working with the ancestors and something and things like that. And I think in my own dealing of generational trauma, there's two things I would say, but I think being open to different types of healing and what is considered mental health healing is key. And so when I think of my initial experience of learning that I have PTSD and on the, the, the search to cure it, um, what the books will tell you would be cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, M- EMDR. Um, I was doing uh, virtual reality, things that were not helping. Like they were actually proving to be more traumatizing. I was having worse nightmares. I was being triggered at all times of day. Um, and then talk therapy was just putting me to this, like, into this pit of an abyss of like, what is the purpose? Why are we here? And I mean, I think things happen in their own divine order. I met my current therapist um, when I got into grad school. She just happened to be working at my grad school's counseling center for that semester. And I had gotten fed up with like not finding anyone. I was like, let me just give it a try. Um, And on our second session, she was like, you know, for your next session, I want you to wear, you know, something stretchy. We're going to do breath work. And I was like, sis is wildin'. Like, I'm not trying to do all that. I'm not trying to do that. She sounds crazy. Like, just listen to me talk. Like, you're doing too much. And I now look at myself and my healing two, three, four years out the game, I'm doing a behavior, uh, a therapy called CRM cognitive resource model. That's grounding. It's, it's, it's dealing with breath work and tuning into your breath and exploring the dissociated child parts that have really caused a lot of your triggers, a lot of your reactions, a lot of your hurt, a lot of your trauma and pain. And so I realized in, in talking about generational trauma and my own healing, a lot of the attack. Yeah, that was one thing that happened to me. But when I go in therapy each week and I do these CRM breathwork sessions and I'm doing a lot of my talk therapy, a lot of this has to do with family, family experiences, family healing, being broken off from family, what your parents experience with their own family, how their fa- how everyone's family treats one another, extensions of family. And so I think the other the other thing that is a taboo is we we don't want to talk about mental health healing, but we also don't want to talk about how like a lot of it is family driven and family cause. And if we were honest about that and said, you know, sometimes my my mom didn't treat me well, my father didn't treat me well, my stepfather didn't treat me well, I was not cared for. And, and you think about that, and that leads kind of in my second piece of of what I've learned in my own journey is like boundaries and grace. If you can have the grace to understand someone's story, all of our parents 
maybe or maybe not did the best they, they could, but they had the example that they followed. And so there's a the grace of understanding. Yes, that was sad. I'm very sorry that happened to you. But then there's the boundary piece of, although that's sad and that happened and that's unfortunate and should have never, I'm not accepting that. And so for those tias that are like, ay, pero what is she over there doing? Okay, you know, he's not cooking your meal. Thank you. We don't need to talk about this or anybody else that's having, you know, real issues dealing with how to overcome these things. Boundaries is probably the best thing that you can do. And I saw a quote, boundaries are the way that I can love me and you at the same time. And I think that that's so powerful and key because it's not saying I love you any less. It's not saying I don't F with you. It's not saying any of that is saying how you move sometimes isn't in line with the journey that I'm having today, this week, next month in my life and my kids' lives. And I, I ask that you respect that. And if you don't, I feel you, that's on you. But this is a boundary that I have in place. And that goes worlds to clearing ancestral and generational and even past life trauma because you're creating new karmic cycles and lines for your development. And I think that that's so key. Lenita, I just want to say that for the boundaries piece, like you're basically teaching people how to treat you. And and that's something I've learned personally is really big in my own healing. And I just want to comment on something that you said. Um, You mentioned how, you know, when we think of therapy, we think of the traditional like talk therapy and a lot of people, especially like people of color, and we've talked about this on the podcast, they don't know that there's so many different ways to heal, ways that involve the body, ways that involve the breath, the energy, your ancestors. And so like, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because honestly, if we're being completely transparent, like most of us would say that traditional psychology and therapy really is meant to keep us sick, you know, so that way it's to build insurances and like all of that. So you have to, if you want to heal, especially when it comes to generational trauma, I've personally learned that you have to kind of do like modalities that are outside of the, of the box. You have to, because like for me, that spiritual component that Cassandra was talking about has been huge for me. Just, you know, I didn't have support from my family um, growing up and all of that, but I've been able to, you know, reparent myself and have that ancestral connection that's been so vital in my healing um, that has kind of healed those those mother wounds, you know? So um, yeah, thank you both for sharing those things. Um, I think it's really important. And what about you, Mary? What's um, something that you would say is something that you've learned when it comes to generational trauma? Yeah, I... um. As everyone was talking, I am actually, Lenita had brought this up, um, speaking about boundaries, and I'm actually listening to an audio book um, called Set Boundaries, Finding Peace. Um, And it's been a great eye-opener, you know, like being able to set your boundaries, like with all type of relationships. And there's even a section where she talks about boundaries with your finances. And I'm like, wow, I never even thought about that. And how like we don't set certain boundaries or maybe violate someone else's boundaries without even realizing it. Um, And then... And I know there's like different ways of healing and I've learned, um, I've been learning about chakras and realizing like how certain things that are going on in your life manifest itself, like in your body, like to the point where you can become physically ill and not even make those connections. Um, so like, I do feel like there's different ways of healing and it's very important to kind of trial and error 
what works for you. Um, and also like breaking the norm and just becoming more self-aware. Um, some people like growing up in like inner cities, like it's normal to hear gunshots in the middle of the night. And it's like, we don't ever want that to become the norm. Um, and just being able to recognize like, okay, like this is not okay. Like, how can we change this? How can I work on the way that this is affecting me and my day-to-day life? Um, and I do notice like a lot of times people do seek mental health treatment when their life is in chaos, right? Like even myself, right? Your depression may be at uh, more severe, your anxiety may be at an all-time high or whatever your diagnosis is. And I think sometimes we're like, okay, let's go seek treatment. Um, And I also think we want to get in the habit of seeking treatment even when you feel like your life is okay or things are at a baseline um, because you start to learn certain things that help you, you know, identify some triggers, um, how to cope. Um, so I think that's like the biggest thing about breaking um, generational trauma, because again, like we're brought up in certain environments where certain things are the norms, but it's up to us to break that, you know, for us in future generations. I think too, one of one other point um, is that everything you guys are speaking on, like it normalizes the fact that we're all going through things and, and that our generational trauma doesn't mean that we are necessarily unwell. We just live in an unwell system. And so um, I think it's really important to have conversations like this, where we go from pathologizing people to normalizing what it is they're going through um, and that there's a cause for it. And, And I feel like it's not talked about often enough, you know? I also think too, with generational trauma, we forget that our generations before also left us with really powerful things. So for all of us that are sitting here that have had experiences that were difficult, that were trials and tribulations, our ancestors also gave us the power and the bloodline to be like, get up, we got this. I don't know how we're gonna do this. And that's why we're here today. And so I think in the repairing of generational wounds, we also have to revere and honor why we're sitting here today, because it may not have been all of them, but some of us, some of them before us also have given us the tools to make it here. Yeah, Lenita, you you had a great point that we talked about as far as just like, you know, I know, especially where I come from in Brooklyn, is like a lot of people when they, you know, when they tell their story, they say like, I I came from nothing. Like I was giving nothing and I had a, you know, started from the zero, started from the bottom, you know, storyline. And, you know, to your point, it's like, ah, we, we, we was embedded with so much more, we was given with so much more, but compared to others, it just didn't look that way. Yeah. So true. I also am in a training, and I'm not teaching on this because I'm new in this. Um, it's a somatic abolitionism training with Resma Menicum. And a lot of what he's, it's for clinicians and coaches. And a lot of what he's just anchoring us into right now early on is that we already have so much indigenous ancestral wisdom inside of us and do these things, the songs, the swaying, the rocking, the humming, these things that we and our families have always done. And it's just about reclaiming these things. So yes, traditional therapy like has value, uh, but for folks of color to, to not actually look at your lineage and the traditions and the gifts, um, you're, you, you're missing on so much that can support you. And I know um, in, in my culture, there's this idea of susto, which is soul loss, which is when your soul leaves your body during a moment of, of trauma, we now understand that the brain and how all that works and disassociation, um, but also to treat it as uh, soul, doing soul retrievals and reclamation 
And when I frame things in this way for clients, they, um, you know, it just helps them not to feel so pathologized, right? Um, so there's, um, thank you for naming that the ancestral wisdom as well. I also just quickly want to add, like, we're getting back to our roots, but like, let's not forget, like, we made this. We see people selling sage, palo santo, doing readings. That's based on indigenous, native, and African healing traditions and practices. So the sooner I think that we recognize that our our learnings and our, our traditions can soothe, can cure, can make us happy, can bring joy, and we stop demonizing and pathologizing those kind of different ways of healing and, and are open the sooner I think as communities of color, you know, how many times have we probably all heard if you if you've ever said, well, I'm experiencing depression or anxiety. Oh, uh-uh, no, no, baby, you don't say that. Or like, you need to go pray. Or like, I know that you guys say so, like all the time, instead of saying, listen, I'm struggling and I'm gonna just go sit over here in the corner and meditate real quick, hold some rocks and I'm gonna be good. But as we go back to that, exactly, I got my malojo on, I have hematite, like I have all that. But like sitting and saying like, listen, this is no disrespect to you and whatever you feel, but like, let's not forget, like we made this. And I think other groups that are not of color and that are not indigenous are trying to reclaim our space, but we have to remember at the end of the day, it is ours. Absolutely. Uh, you lovely ladies brought up a lot of, lot of good points. And the one point I, that I want to say Mary was kind of talking about was kind of growing up and dehumanizing what you see in your community all the time. So for me, when I, I was in a, a, a terror attack as well, and back in 2015, I was in Paris and I was stuck in a bar for several hours um, until everything escalated and we were able to leave. But driving through, kind of seeing that that could have easily been me in that situation and to see having to know that other people that I was with lost people around them, people that they work with. It was so real. But for me, it was something that I was just like, oh, I survived and I'm kind of downplaying it because I'm so used to seeing people die every day in my community. So being in a terror attack is like, oh, okay. And just understanding that I didn't, I didn't even get any treatment during that time or even talk about it. And then it also made me think about 9-11. I remember being in third grade and being able to watch the smoke from the window. I'm 28 now. And I still remember that day It's vivid. What about all the, the treatment for those kids who, who went through that and witnessing that? So when we talk about this, you you all hit so many good points, and it just it just kept my mind thinking about how we need to kind of work on continue to to identify our traumas and work on them and talk about them. It's okay, you know the the power of of saying no. You know, Lanita brought it up, uh, uh, talked about it. It's 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 amazing. I think for the most part, uh, as as we help communities around us heal and as we heal, as we heal ourselves um, and you all are kind of in the spaces. Um, Lanita, you talked about this a little bit, but what are you, and this goes for all of the panelists um, and we can start with Mary, uh, but what are some of the inequities that you are seeing within your fields when, uh, while you're working and addressing some of the uh, mental health issues? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I can go back to when I was in grad school. <clears throat> My program was fairly small, but they used to take class pictures every year. And I remember the classes grew and most of the people were older white women. Um, and as classes continue to grow, people were going into grad school straight out of undergrad. So the classes got younger and we got into the field earlier. But for the most part, they were a lot of white women. There weren't many men. And I specifically remember there were about five men in my cohort and one dropped out. And there were four four white men in the field. Um, I did go to school upstate. So again, like it was mostly white people, but in my experience, there's not a lot of minorities who are in the field. And so I think, and I'm not saying, you know, a white person can't help a black person, but I do feel like we do need diverse people in the field, right? Um, not only with race, gender identity, just life experiences, um, the type of religion you believe in, or if you believe in no religion. And I feel like that's how we can grow as individuals is being able to connect with people who are different from us. Um, a lot of times we only hang out with a certain group of people or engage with people who have the same beliefs, but you have to challenge yourself and to grow. And I feel like working with young adults, you know, sometimes like, I don't want to work with that person. They old and white. They're not going to know, you know, and it's like, let's kind of like work through those things, like, you know, and being able to challenge the way we think. But, um, and I also think another inequity is pay. Um, when I told people I was going to school for social work, it's like, you're going to be broke. And I'm just like, what? No, like there's ways you can make money in the field, but there's this idea that every social worker don't get paid a lot, but a lot of agencies are not for profit. So we already know how that goes, but I really do feel like people do deserve, um, good pay for the work that they're doing. Um, so those are just some of the inequities um, that I noticed in the field. And when there's vacant positions and I know someone, I'm like, listen, this this person is having like a job opening. You should apply. So being able to connect people um, that I know um, to the field. Yeah, that's, you touched on some high, you know, some high key points, uh, you know, with the, how one, you know, the pipeline to education being, you know, being a barrier, Right. Um, and then the amount of people that you see in those spaces uh, that look like you or, or maybe look like you, but have similar experiences of where you're from, right? Um, also, you know, the, the income uh, for people in the field and, you know, how this is more so like a public facing, uh, but <laughs> everybody got to live. Everybody has to have a, you know, a quality of life that, you know, is conducive to their own mis- men- uh, mental health. Uh, but definitely, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Lenita, Cassandra, you have anything else to share? Yeah, on the flip side of pay, a, a beneficiary paying, it's hard. If we are talking about PTSD treatment, all of those treatments I named, CBT, EMDR, BR, CRM, I lived nice before I went back to school, like Clinton knows, like I lived on North Michigan Ave in Chicago. I had a nice corporate job. After the attack, I probably had like 17K in savings gone, gone within a year of surviving the attack because PTSD treatment for non-veterans is not free. And all of that was not insurance covered. Um, The codes, if we're talking about inequity and like health insurance, the codes that they come up with to, to build the insurance to make it not paid is wild. I have literally something that I didn't cause, which most people that are dealing with mental health don't cause their own situations, 
But in this instance, I really didn't cause this. I come back. I'm like looking to my to my country, my health system to help. And they're like, nah, girl, you're out of $290 a session, $300 a session for an hour. And if we're if we're talking about folks that have not previously had the resources to self-soothe, to, to get to a place where they're able to manage any of these things without help, without resources, they don't have the money. We're talking about a whole nother issue. We're talking about suicide. And so we're talking about just a, a litany of other things that come along. And so I had this conversation. I was really fortunate to speak at the World Bank about some of the impacts, financial impacts of terrorism on survivors. I, quite frankly, I, I don't know how I'm still paying now. I'm lucky to have insurance that covers 70% of my sessions, but like that's an oddity. I'm an anomaly in that. And so we're talking about, too, having these conversations in communities of color, if we're targeting at-risk youth, if we're talking about those of us who have experienced generations of, of trauma, whether it's big T trauma, little t trauma, we need to talk about restructuring the pay. And that's why I love that. I'm seeing so many therapists doing sliding scale there's um, now with the internet, with YouTube, with Talkspace, with some of these things, you can informally stumble on resources. But I go to therapy every every week and I shell out $290 a week just knowing that this is an investment in me and seeing, you know, the growth that I've had. But even having if we're if we're having a conversation about growth, like I ha- was at a point where I had suicidal ideation, where would I have been if I didn't have the resources to pay? And so we really have to talk about how unfair the the access and the entry into mental health is for anyone, not even just communities of color. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, your, you know, your experience, like, and <laughs> you're so right, you know, and I think that's why I was excited when you and uh, Desiree was talking about the different forms of healing, the different ways of healing, because uh, not only is it, uh, you know, taboo to talk about, uh, you know, mental health in our, in our, in our communities, but trying to put that on somebody's expense list, like when they just want like, well, food is number one, rent is number two, maybe, you know? So like, where's mental health? Like, I'm like, I guess I'm gonna go for a walk because that's all I could get, you know? And and then, so you speaking, you're speaking to so many people right now. And, and, um, and I just want to say thank you for that. And it is something that, you know, we, it has to, it has to have some type of change in a policy. Like, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but I'm not going to, I'll digress, I digress because <laughs> we can go into a whole wormhole on that. But, um, but Cassandra, you want to have anything to add to that? <laughs> um, sure. So I'll talk a little bit about, um, the issues with the academia in the institutions that are training um, social workers. And um, if you look at the public um, counseling, marriage and family therapists and social worker code of ethics, social work is the only one that's really explicit that it's part of the social worker's job to advocate for social justice and, and marginalized folks, but it still is very broad And the fact that there are social workers, psychologists, um, one person um, has millions of followers on Instagram and um, supports and follows and likes 
uh, folks that are white supremacist sympathizers, people that promoted QAnon conspiracy theories, people that supported the insurrection. And um, so, so that is something that really needs to be looked at the the code of ethics and, and really tightened up because there are folks that are perpetuating so much harm coming out and working with communities of color and causing more harm. And in the academic institutions as well, you know, there's still a huge disproportion of tenured uh, full-time faculty that are people of color. Um, there is still huge disproportionate amounts of trauma training and um, things like critical race theory being integrated into the curriculum. When I went to grad school 10 years ago here in the LA area, only one social work school, not mine, um, had critical race theory as like an integral, it's a part of every single class and conversation um, lens in their education. The rest of us, it was like, oh, here's one module and like a chapter on working with marginalized folks and, and then now go work with them, you know? And so just from the get, that's an issue. And, um, and I'll just add one last piece we have to really look at um, what are our requirements for folks being able to get into this field that have had lived experience. Uh, folks like me that have had multiple psychiatric hospitalizations and, you know, a thick mental health record. Uh, folks like my husband, who's a, you know, he was an addict and he has um, a few felonies and, and could he get into this field? And, no, because there's background checks to work with a lot of certain groups and populations. And, and that really needs, and I saw um, one uh, student in my cohort really struggle with even finding an internship placement because of a felony. So there has to be ways um, that these things are looking, looked at with more nuance because we're saying we want more representation and we want more folks from communities and these fields, but you know, it's, it's pretty much like so easy to catch felony if you're a person of color, especially in like the United States um, in many ways with over policing and all that, I can go into that. Um, and we have to really like, as a social work, marriage and family therapist, et cetera, organizations look at all of these um, issues. Yeah. You all are dropping gems <laughs> and it's, you know, great. And, and it's something, and it's something to you know. Um, I hope that people listening or people who will listen to this, um, you know, they understand all of the different facets of barriers that exist within this field, even for people who work in the field, right? So all around, you know, uh, you know, who, who knows? Maybe we can get somebody in Congress to listen to this, and be like, we need to put some legislation together because. This, this, it shouldn't be this hard to heal, right? Especially when this is the message that, you know, the president and vice president is, is, is pitching right now. Uh, so definitely want to just kind of throw that out there. I'm working on it, Mark. All right. Got Stacey Abrams on speed dial. Right. Kamala, <laughs> Kamala Harris is coming to Guatemala in a couple months. Right. I'm going to try and fly it to her. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, this, so like, I just want to kind of just, take people through this conversation really quickly because this is like, I'm digesting a lot of information and, uh, and I just want to kind of give those people who are listening the uh, opportunity to do the same. But I, you know, I, it's just amazing to have you all here and listen to your stories and see how you say, how somewhere in your life you say you've been segued into advocacy um, for mental health, whether on a professional level or just on a personal level. 
And and because, you know, like Desiree said, it's like, you know, mental health may not necessarily be something that people are like, oh, I want to be that, you know. But I mean, I'm really excited to hear about Mary's experience. Like, hey, that actually somewhere I want to be because it had an impact on my life personally, you know. Um, and I think this is kind of just widening people's uh, perspectives and even wanting to have the conversation because the experiences uh, and, I, you know, just having this conversation, like it's the first time I've ever heard Clinton talking about, you know, the terror attack in Paris. We've never talked about it. You know, so just this opportunity in itself, we're, we're growing and learning as well. Um, you know, and, and also like uh, also also, you know, something that you said, Lanita, that made me think of a quote, Oprah. I think I, I forgot. I, I want to say it's Oprah. I, mean, I think it's say it's Oprah. Right. It's <laughs> like when you go to therapy, it's like you're going to therapy to deal with everybody else who hasn't gone to therapy, right? <laughs> like, and, yes, that is it. <laughs> and it's, it's just like, it, it changes a lot of, you know, just how, to, how you navigate and, you know, negotiate, you know, boundaries and just your space and where you are and how you show up. Um, and then, and then, um, I, but I think, I think Oprah definitely said this one, but when she's in the room, you know, and she's like at, you know, the premise of like, oh, this is just a black woman, you know, whatever. Like, she's like, no, I'm not there alone. Like, I'm there with all my ancestors as well. And like, I felt that so deeply in this conversation, you know, like, um, and I think that's just like something that we don't, it's like you said, it's, it's something that we haven't claimed or a lot of people just haven't really been aware of. But it's like, nah, like you are a sum, uh, you know, your, your ancestors as well as dreams, you know? And that's where we are. And that's, and, and just, and acknowledging that is healing in that itself. Um, but I just wanted to kind of like, just thank you all again for being here, um, you know, and sharing your gems, your wisdom, you know, your experiences, your expertise. Um, and just wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to kind of just shout out any type of projects that you're working on. Like where can people find you on social media? So we can start with Cassandra and then go to Lita and then Mary. Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Cassandra, C-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A underscore Solano. Um, I am hanging out there all the time. Uh, I run uh, one-on-one programs, groups, and I also have um, a monthly membership um, that I try to really keep accessibly priced um, for an opportunity to work with me. Um, I do offer sliding scale for BIPOC folks. So holler at me if you come over on Instagram. I'd love to say hello. I'm ahead to follow you too, girl. <laughs> um, for me, I'm going to drop two IGs because I'm balancing both um, in the spirit of honesty. Given all that was happening last year, I took like a brief pause for from PTSD out loud. But last week, I'm like, I'm back. So on IG, you can follow me at Lanita Margarita, L-A-N-I-T-A. Margarita as in what gets you lit on Wednesdays and then um, PTSD out loud um, PTSD O-U-T-L-O-U-D and then something I'm really excited um, that I have coming up is I never thought in my wildest dreams me and my therapist are partnering together to do a spiritual retreat um, in Guatemala yeah and for New Year's and so we're going to be dropping the deets soon but you can probably find that on my Instagram pages, Lenny to Margarita, PTSD Out Loud, and on my website, ptsdoutloud.com. So it's going to be really dope. We're going to be doing the basics of CRM, 
um, and reconnecting mind, body, and soul after the Panajachel took us all out for 2020 and 2021. So come get that mind right after the Panera Bread. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I'm going to follow you because I would love to go to that retreat. Um, my Instagram is also Mary Jane. Um, I don't have any projects I'm working on right now, but I'm always looking for ways to get involved. Thank you all. We truly appreciate you all being on. This conversation was definitely real. It was, it was, it was kind of bringing tears to, to my eyes, just talking about some of the things that we were just covering. Um, love the, the conversation that we have. And I appreciate each, of, each and every one of you taking the time out to, to be on here. So thank you so much. Seriously, it means a lot. Mm-hmm.